Welcome to the Reconcile Community Church podcast. We hope and pray that the resources that will be shared on here would be a blessing to you. If you want more information or to support our church financially as we do the work in the beautiful Queen City of Cincinnati, Ohio, you can find more information about that at www.reconcilecincy.org. Be blessed. Continuing on in our uh, sermon series uh, entitled The Last Dance. And uh, I got to say, man, the it's crazy that um, it just feels as if every Sunday I'm, I'm preparing for these messages, the harder they get. Um, I'm not sure what that means. Uh, I know they said, you know, uh, in order to be a fruitful pastor, you are a fruitful preacher, you need to allow the Lord to speak to you and allow the sermon to cut you before you go and then share it and expect it to cut other people. And so the Lord has been doing a work in me in the midst of the season and in this time together. So I'm excited to be able to share with you all uh, from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13 through 18. I want to read it in your hearing. If you got it, uh, you, you, you can read along with me. It says this in thir- uh, uh, 13 through 18. He says, says, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that all those in the province of Asia have deserted me, including Philogius and Hermogenes. Ooh, these names, boy. May the Lord grant mercy to the, one, the household of Omniforus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he diligently searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant that he obtained mercy from him on that day. You know very well how much he ministered at Ephesus. The very word of God, amen. Let's go before the Lord and let's pray. Gracious God, we're thankful for... Um, moments where we can just sit under the word. Now, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen me as I share. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would give me the boldness and the clarity that's necessary, uh, that your people may hear the good news. Lord, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross, that people wouldn't be blown away by my oratory skills, but that they would be blown away by you because you're the hero. Remind us of this truth all throughout this time that we're together. It's in your son's name we pray and give thanks. Amen and amen. I've been married going on. We'll be celebrating 10 years next year. So we're almost at the 10-year mark. And one of the things that's been interesting about marriage uh, is that it's hard. <laughs> um, so if you are single watching this and you are aspiring to be married, I just want to give you some free game. It is hard, um, but it's worthwhile. And one of the things that's interesting, uh, the longer Kristen and I uh, are married, one of the things that I have found myself doing is looking at those who have gone before us, who have been married for long stretches of time. So think about my mom. I think about my aunt. I think about all of these other people. I think about uh, one of my mentors, Dr. Crawford and Karen Loritz. Um, I can think about all of these people who have been married for long stretches of time. And what they have shown me is that highs and lows, ups and downs come with marriage. But there's this reality that you have to be committed Commitment is the absolute necessity if you want your marriage to last. Um, it, that's the secret sauce. Uh, because there are going to be moments where it's going to be beautiful 
and everything is hitting well and everything is good. And y'all are like, it's just y'all are all cool in the gang. And then there are going to be moments where it's going to be challenging. There are going to be challenges in the marriage. There are going to be moments where they want to walk away. And what I've realized is that those marriages that last 30 and 40 and 50 years, what they have is this undergirding of commitment. They stick to it. Now, to be fair, there are two types of marriages here. There's those who, who make it, let's say, uh, lovingly. And then there is this other type of marriage where they make it and it's in spite of one another. Like they just waiting for the other one to die. You know, those type of marriages where they together, but you can tell they don't like each other at all. And they literally like, I just wish Josephine would just go ahead and kick the bucket. Right. You, you know those. We laugh because we've seen those type of marriages. But I'm talking about the other marriages where it seems as if, man, they are almost just in, in sync. They're they're unified. I'm reminded of, of Dr. Crawford and Karen Loritz. They wrote this book, right? And I've used it for premarital counseling for so many times because in it, they share so much about how they have been able to be committed to each other for years upon years. Matter of fact, older, longer than I've been alive. And they always talk about this undergirding of being committed to see one another and say, you know what? No matter what you show me, I'm still going to be here. I may, I may flinch, but I'm never going to turn completely away from you. Commitment is the secret sauce, is what I'm saying. And as I thought about that and thought about like marriage and thought about all these other things, endeavors, I think that commitment is really the undergirding in a lot of the things that God has called us to. If we want to be faithful in what God has called us to and to be faithful to uh, the life that God is, uh, is calling us into, we have to be committed. This is just it's not rocket science. If we want to mature in our faith, we have to be committed to Christ. This idea of commitment seems like it's like, you know, it's taboo these days where, you know, people are having um, having challenges with this idea and concept of commitment. And I get it. There are some things that, man, is rightfully so that we should walk away from. But I think there is an undertone in our society today where we don't like commitment. If if there is a way for us to write in the plan, a, a, a back door for us to get out, we'll do it. Commitment is something that seems to be rare these days. But Paul, as he's writing to Timothy, specifically in these two particular uh, in this particular passage, what we see in this passage is that Paul is reminding Timothy of the importance of commitment. And what he's telling him is that, man, I need you to be committed to the ministry of the gospel, and I need you to be committed to gospel friendships. It's this idea that he's saying, like, look, if you're going to last as a pastor, Timothy, you have to be committed. And how it plays out in these two places are going to be crucial for you. You need to be committed to the fidelity of the gospel and the theology that I have given to you. And I also need you to be committed to your brothers and sisters who will go through some stuff. Don't moonwalk away from them. You're going to have to be committed. So what does this look like for us? Here's the big idea. I wish I had, I wish I had like this just real fancy like deal, but like, honestly, this is very cut and dry what Paul is saying. But, but here's what Paul, this is the big idea. Paul is reminding Timothy of the importance of being committed to gospel ministry and gospel centered friendships. Again, I wish it was, you know, just a really dope, you know, like, man, 
intricate details, this is going to be very practical. And in a lot of ways, man, it may make us a little bit uncomfortable today. But I think we need to hear this. Here's the first thing, and there's only two points here today that I want to jump in. He says, be faithful to the gospel ministry. Verse 13 and 14 says this, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit. If you're taking notes, I want you to underline this phrase, hold on. I want you to underline sound teaching. I want you to underline in faith and love and guard the good deposit. All of these are important for us to see as he's talking about being committed to the gospel ministry. First, he says, I need you to be, I need you to hold on to the pattern. What, what Paul is talking about here is what he had shared with us in the beginning and in some of the other letters that we saw, where he begins to lay out in detail the theology around who God is, who Christ is, and how the church is to operate. So when he says, you know, I want you to hold on to the pattern, think of the theology that he taught him. When he taught him about the importance of Jesus Christ being the, the one who died in our place and for our sins, that it is Christ who we build everything around. He's talking about the importance of this. He talks about the reality that, look, man, there are things and patterns and way the church is supposed to operate. And I need you to understand and I need you to pattern your ministry around these things. You need to have good, as they say, orthodoxy. Everybody say orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is right thinking or right theology. Make sure you understand the truths. You need to be committed to understanding the truths. That's essentially what he's saying here when he says, hold on to the pattern. What we believe matters. This is, um, again, I can't make this more, uh, more clear to us. What we believe matters. You can't just have just, you know, this idea that, man, you know, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. You need to know what the Bible actually says. I'm not discounting that terminology and that statement. That is true. But we have to be people who are studiers of the scriptures to know what the scriptures say. We cannot form good theology if we don't study our Bibles. What we believe matters. Later on in this passage, I'm going to share with you why, G, why, why Paul says, I need you to guard this. But for right now, I need us to understand that we have to be students of the scriptures. What you believe, it matters. Lifeway conducted uh, their annual um, state of theology study, and uh, they did one for 2022. And there are moments in the life of a pastor where I'm really excited. And then there are moments in the life of the pastorate where I am deeply discouraged. This was a moment where I was deeply discouraged. This survey was given, hear it now, to Christians, self-described Christians. And it was to share what do they believe. I'm not going to give you everything, but you can find it. I'll, I'll post a link of it later for you to read it in its entirety. But essentially, this was the carry. This was the big idea that they came out of this. It revealed theological illiteracy is at an all-time high in the church. Now, remind you, what you're about to see is a survey results from Christians. I just, I just, I, I need us to see this. 
says God size confusion. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a stand over here. And so if you're, you know, got the video, you could just show the slides here. God size confusion. It says the percentage of Americans who agree there is one true God in three persons. 71% of the people said that. Good. That's great. The Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. Look at the number. Jesus is the first and greatest being by God. What we believe, it matters. You can see that there are, these, are, these are Christians that are saying that, that, that the Holy Spirit is a force, that he's not a person. This goes against the very Trinitarian theology that we believe, that they are three distinct persons, equal in essence, different in function. Biblical balance. The Bible is 100% accurate in all that it teaches. 51% of the people say this. But listen to this. The biblical account of Jesus, uh, Jesus' resurrection is completely accurate. They say 66% of this. It, that ain't a big number. This number is not as big as we want it. Modern science disproves the Bible. 40% of self-effacing Christians say that that's true. That the Bible is not literally true. I just want us to sit with this reality. What we believe, it matters. Abortion is a sin. Here go your numbers. Scriptures are clear. We may not like that, but the scriptures are clear. Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. Strongly disagree. For the wages of sin is death. But not really. That's what this says. I'm not making these up. What we believe, it matters. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful above all uh, uh, understanding who can know it. Second part is that God knows it. We don't. Sex outside of traditional marriage is a sin. Eh, somewhat agree. <laughs> we know what the scriptures say, but do we actually believe what the scriptures say? I'm sharing these because I want us to soberly consider this is what Christians are saying. And if this is what we're saying, we are not unique in any stretch of the imagination. There are so many people who may not have read their Bibles. And this ain't a gripe session for us to be like, oh, my God, this and the other. This is just what it is. So for us to say that we are followers of Jesus Christ and simultaneously not believe the very scriptures that are presented to us to be the very mouthpiece of what God has for us, man, and we don't believe that. We don't actually believe that Jesus really was here. We got a problem. The Holy Spirit gives a spiritual new birth or new life before a person has faith in Jesus Christ. This is what people believe. And what is scary is the levels that these percentages are in. Hell is a real place where certain people will be punished forever. The numbers aren't as high as you thought. Because these are self-describing Christians who are not sure what they believe. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. 
And this is what broke my heart. That some strongly disagree, some somewhat disagree, and some somewhat agree. Which means that they think that if this is not true, that they somehow have to put a comma and put that it's their works that help them. Which is antithetical to everything that the scriptures tell us. Modern science disproves the Bible. You can see this. Here's the one about the Holy Spirit. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 31% of people strongly agree with that statement. What does this tell us? I can keep going. Is the Bible 100% accurate? Some say yeah. Most say, meh. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. I'm not making this stuff up. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contain accounts of ancient myths, but it's not literally true. See the numbers. This should be sobering us up right now. I, I hope that it is sobering us up. God's not concerned with my day-to-day, -day, uh, you know, decisions. Yes, he is. This is one about homosexuality. The scriptures, do they speak to them in the same way as today? Again. They go on. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, uh, and Islam. Strongly agree. But what about John? What about John? Four? Didn't, didn't he? Jesus said of himself, I am the way and the truth of life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Brothers and sisters, I share these with you because we cannot assume it. Paul is telling him, hold on to the pattern. Y'all heard it said, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> Paul wanted Timothy to hold on to the theology and to be a student of the scriptures. And he wanted him to understand this and allow that to shape his ministry. He wanted him to be rooted in the historical truths of what it was. And you and I have to be rooted in what we believe. We have to be students of the word of God. What I, and it could, I could have kept going. Like there, there were more slides, but I just wanted to inundate us with this reality that we cannot assume that people are holding on to the pattern. That there are some of us who are not going to be committed and being faithful to the gospel ministry because we don't necessarily believe what it is that we say we believe. But hear me, brothers and sisters, the scriptures are powerful. Our theology is important. It was Thomas Guthrie who said this about the word of God. He said this, and, I, and, I, and I've treasured it. He said, the Bible is an armory of heavenly weapons, a laboratory of infallible medicines, a mind of exhaustless wealth. It is the guidebook for every road, a chart for every sea, medicine for every malady, and a bomb for every wound. Rob us of our Bible, and our sky has lost its sun. And what he's getting at is this idea that we have to be students of the scriptures. I cannot 
pushed on us enough pastorally that we have to be, we got to know what we believe and we have to be able to stand confidently on what it is that we believe. The word of God is powerful. And I just want to remind us about the word of God, just to, to help us to, to just be more, uh, to consider the scriptures more, to consider what has been shared, to consider the gospel message, consider what Jesus Christ has done, consider what the gospels tell us, consider what the Old Testament tells us. The scriptures are left here for us to be able to root our lives around them so we understand who God is and how he operates. The word of God is powerful. The author of the scriptures is God himself, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God. The Bible is authoritative. I, chapter 2 says this, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. It is sufficient for our needs. I can't wait to preach this particular passage. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, rebuke, for reproof, and for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It is effective when its truths are proclaimed and the things are applied, things happen. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 11 says this, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which, which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. But oh, it's been a personal benefits to the scriptures as well. It is the source of truth for you and I. It's a source of happiness. Speaking of God's wisdom, listen to what the writer of Proverbs states. It says, blessed or happy is the man who listens to me. This is the source of our power. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. I love this. He says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's the lamp, of, lamp to our feet, the light to our path. Lamp meaning that it, is, it shows us the way to go and the light to our path showing us where we should avoid. We have to hold to the pattern. But not only that, he says to do it in faith and love. And I love this because what Paul is getting him to understand is that, yeah, your orthodoxy is important. What you think and what you understand, the right thinking that you have is important. But now how it manifests itself needs to be clothed in faith and love. There is a real reality that for some of us, we know a lot of theology. We are committed to the scriptures and theology, but we do it absent from faith and love, and we show up as self-righteous jerks for Jesus. Where we just are so concerned about being right that we don't care about the person right in front of us. Now hear me, there's a tension that we face. We must stand for truth, but as we stand for truth, we must model Christ-likeness as well. And this is why Paul would put these two things together. He says, hold on to the pattern, but do it in this particular manner. Remember, Timothy is a pastor. And so he's going to be standing for the truths of the gospel, but he wants him to stand and to live in a different type of way than what it would have been seen before. We don't need, we don't need self-righteous jerks for Jesus. We've all come in contact with these people where they may have a lot in their head, but their heart is absent. We must know the truth, but we must have a heart in sharing that truth. 
This is why it was said in John chapter um, in John chapter one, verse 14 about Jesus. It says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one, the only the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is why Jesus would practice compassion towards people. He would extend grace to those who were struggling to get the truth that he had just gave out. It's the reason why he sat with sinners. It's the reason why he reasoned with Nicodemus. It's the reason why he wept with the sisters when they were upset with him for not coming to raise their brother sooner. It's the reason why he would sit at the well with a woman of questionable past. Jesus, the incarnate Logos, displaying to us in real time what it looks like to display love and conveying truth. And so should we. So we are students of the scriptures. We are students of theology. We want to make sure we understand what it is that we believe. But at the same time, when we are dispersing this truth, we are making sure that we are doing it as Jesus would do it. Where he would speak truth to power, but at the same time, he was compassionate and empathetic in the midst of doing it. But then he tells them in that same verse, he says, but listen, I need you to guard the deposit guard the deposit. This idea to guard the deposit is interesting. It's this idea to protect from loss or damage. So Timothy, Timothy's job was to protect the church from false teachers and their instruction. And what Paul is telling him is that as you're trying to guard that deposit, just know that you can't do this in your own strength, that it's going to come from the power of the Holy Spirit. Now hear me, Paul's words to Timothy are centered around this idea that he's a pastor. So this would be more for me too, being a pastor. My job is to guard y'all from silliness and things that may come up that will try to, to try to derail you so that you start thinking like some of these, uh, these results say, that man, you know, the Bible ain't really all that true. That Jesus ain't the only way. Or that you can just speak things into existence. That you can somehow just will the things to happen out of nothing. Right. That you are God, you are queen and you know how that goes. And especially in uh, historic African-American communities. I'm to guard you from false teaching. That's my job. But I can't do this in my own strength. This is what Paul is trying to get Timothy to hear. Like you're going to have to rely on the Holy Spirit to help you to guard this. And that's the primary application to this. But I think the secondary application can be applied to the believer as well. We must all guard what we let into our minds and our souls. It matters. So just as much as I'm guarding the church, you have the reality and the responsibility to guard your own minds as well. This is why Peter would say this in 1 Peter where he says, look, I need you to be sober minded. I need you to gird up the loins of your mind to really get rid of stinking thinking. I need you to be able to put a fence around what it is that you let in and out of your minds because it matters. And we have to be uh, individuals who, who understand that we are not just living this life willy-nilly devoid of any kind of situation, but that Ephesians chapter 6 is true. When Paul was telling the church at Ephesus, look, the battle that you're fighting is not just, just physical, but it's spiritual as well, very much spiritual. So you got to put on the whole armor of God. This is an assault. We have to make sure that we are prepared to ward off any of the crazy things that may come. We got to be diligent. And we got to be careful. 
And I'm sharing this with us and, and I'm, 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 I'm really spending time in this space because it may not be you who may be falling astray to this stuff, but it's your friends and your family members, your co-workers, your neighbors. You're hearing this stuff come up more and more and more. That even within the community of faith, there are people who are bringing in a little bit of this and a little bit of that. We're allowing a little bit of New Age theology to come in, a little bit of Eastern mysticism. We sprinkle a little bit of African spirituality with our faith. It's how some people can be speaking things into the atmosphere while burning sage to remove evil spirits, while reading our daily horoscope and allowing that to keep us trapped in toxic traits because that's just a Taurus in us while praying to God, but holding crystals in our hands. We have to be careful because the enemy would love nothing more than for us to be spiritual Frankensteins. Well, we just take a little bit of this. We take a little bit of that. Oh, that sounds really good. That, that, that book that I read, The Secret, just that sounds really good. So I can just, you know, I can just have a right mindset. I can take a little bit of that. And you know what? I know the Lord says that I'm more than a conqueror, so I'm gonna sprinkle some 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 verses in there. And I, I'm, I'm gonna do it's nothing more than an old lie from the enemy called syncretism. Paul is telling Timothy, and I think he's telling us today that we stick to the truth, and the truth, as he said in Galatians, will set you free. But then secondly, and let me get out of here quickly, he, he says we need to be faithful to our gospel community. Verse 15 through 18 says this, you know that all those in the province of Asia have deserted me, including Phlegius and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Omniphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he diligently searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant that he obtained mercy from him on that day. You know very well how much he ministered at Ephesus. This is what it says in these particular verses. And it's interesting what, what Paul is doing here. We know this reality. This is, not like a, this is not like the first time this has happened. Paul gets into some mess, and that large group of people that he used to rock with got real small. They were like, obviously it must not be you know follow jesus ain't all that he in jail again like you know like i don't know if this persecution is is really what it's up to be i don't know if this if this christian faith is really all that now we don't know everything that happened with these two guys in the first part what we do know is that they they moonwalked away from paul when he needed them instead of pressing into this friendship that they had they walked away because he was going through something and they were like we don't want parts of that. We don't know what happened and we don't know about their faith. But usually when Paul talks in these terms, usually these people, they go off the deep end. They just literally, they, they, they take their faith and they leave it right there with Paul and be like, you know what? I'm cool on this. If this is what it's going to come out to, I'm straight. I don't want this. And it's interesting because in a lot of ways, we have friends like this too. Or we can be that type of friend. When things are not going well and we see people who are loving the Lord and let's say they hit hard times and maybe we're shaky on our faith, sometimes we'll back away from them too. We can be just like these two friends. Or we can have friends that are like these two friends who walk away when persecution and hardships come associated with the gospel. But now juxtapose this to that of a faithful friend. 
I'm a forest. This is where I want to hang my hat on. I'm a forest was a good friend. He was committed. You know why I know he was committed? Because all throughout these three verses, Paul reminds Timothy of just how faithful of a friend he was. He says, man, this guy where everybody else deserted me. Paul's setting it up. Everybody deserted me. But this one friend stuck with me. He said, and when he often refreshed me and he wasn't ashamed of my chains. That's good news that Paul was saying that he was experiencing loneliness. But this friend was able to come in and to refresh his soul. And it carries with it this idea that Paul was so down on his on his on himself in this situation that when this friend showed up, it would have given him enough strength to keep pressing forward. This is the role of a good friend. You've been in those places where you've been down in the depths and you've just been like, I, I, I'm one step away from quitting. I'm one step away from throwing in the flag. In fact, you may have thrown in the towel and it's that friend who comes in and throws it back at you like, no, God's called you to something else. It's the refreshment of your soul. That's the mark of a faithful friend who's committed to this idea of being with him. He wasn't ashamed of his chains. What he's sharing with us is that he was rocking with him. Yeah, he's in chains, but I know what God has called him to. And so I'm sticking with him. There's some beauty in that as a friend. But not only that, but I love it because he was committed to Paul in their friendship. Verse 17 tells us he diligently searched for me and found me. Paul would have been literally like like chained to another a Roman soldier. Like that's how they rocked back in those days. So he would have literally been there. Sometimes he was on house arrest, but they wouldn't have necessarily told him where they was at. And so it would have meant that when Omniforce got there to Rome, he would have had to find Paul. He would have had to been asking around. He would have been, can you imagine him looking for his friend? How long it would have taken? We don't know. All we know is that he searched diligently, meaning that he was turning over every stone that he could, inconveniencing himself to make sure that he was able to see his friend. And the text says he found me. He was intentional. Good friendships are intentional. They don't just happen by happenstance. It's not like, oh, you know, this is the, no, they intentionally build with one another. He found his friend and he continued the ministry for Paul when he was locked up. Paul was locked up. He's like, man, who can I bring? Who can I send to Ephesus where Timothy was at, which probably would have been the person who carried the letter to Timothy to encourage him in first Timothy. Or even to write or to hand the letter to him for the book of Ephesus, Ephesians that you got. It could have been this guy. Paul couldn't have done it, but he could trust in his friend to carry out something when he was gone. It's the mark of a true friend. And he's saying, like, we have to be the same level of committed to one another. It's going to be difficult at times. It's going to be inconvenient at times. But if we are if we are faithful to it, there are blessings in this pursuit of gospel community and friendship. I close with just inundating you with scriptures on the importance of friendship. All throughout the scriptures, uh, we see this. Proverbs 18, verse 24 says this, one with many friends may be harmed, but there is a friend who stays closer than a brother. Proverbs 17, verse 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a difficult time. That's how you know when you really got good friends. When the bottom falls out, who calls? When you confused and lost, like who picks up the phone? Who says, you know what, I'm just going to come kick it with you? 
I, I, I don't need to say anything. I don't got to give you any biblical platitudes. I'm just going to sit and be present. John 15, verse 12 and 13. I love this. This is my man. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. And you know what it says after this? Jesus looks at his disciples and says, and y'all my friends. And then a few more steps after that, he ends up literally dying for them. Job 42, verse 10. I love this particular passage because it's interesting. He says, after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and doubled his previous possessions. I'm not saying that if you pray for your friends, you're going to get a bitly in the sky. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that there is a blessing when we are intentional with our friendships. We know the story of Job. He was going through all types of stuff. And his friends were good at one point and horrible at another. But they stayed. And there was something about Job's interaction with his friends that, in, that ended up giving uh, opening up an opportunity for him to receive. What am I saying? That there's an opportunity for us. There's a beauty and a blessing in uh, gospel-centered friendship. Psalm 133, verse 1, how delightfully good when brothers live together in harmony. In Ecclesiastes verse 4, verse 10, for if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity to the one who falls without another to lift him up. You can't do this life alone. You will not succeed. There'll be an area of your sanctification that will be halted because you cannot see your life in 360, as one of my mentors once said. But in the same vein that I'm saying that we have to strive for community, we have to be this level of friend like I'm the force as well, who was committed to it. And because of his commitment to the friendship that he had with Paul, it blessed Paul. And in turn, it blessed Timothy. Because this ain't going to be the first time that we see this. As we continue on to 2 Timothy, you're going to see him come back up to this idea of friends helping him. Paul seems like a rock star, but he really was really human. And it was his friends that lifted him up, that the Lord used his friends to help him in hard situations to further the ministry of the gospel they had for him, but at the same time, to keep him focused on what it is that he had for him. He was in jail, about to die, and he knew it. He was just as human as you and I. And God used his friends to help lift him up. What kind of friend will we be? How committed will we be as brothers and sisters? who follow after the Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for this time and this opportunity to be together. Lord, I pray now that you would be with us and allow us opportunities now to be able to, um, to be encouraged, to be students and be committed to the scriptures, but then also be, uh, be committed to friendships and community because we need both. And so Lord, I pray now that you would just be with us, guide us, allow us to wrestle with these truths. Lord, I pray that in all of it, that you would encourage us. We thank you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.